so this evening we're going to be looking at the last chapter of the book of Jonah. Um, so it's the last chapter. We're just going to do a very quick recap on everything we've seen so far. Uh, Jonah is supposed to tell Nineveh to turn to God, but Jonah turns away from God. But God makes Jonah turn back and again calls Jonah to tell Nineveh to turn or God would make them turn one way or the other. But then they turn from their evil and towards God. But today we're going to see Jonah turn his face away from Nineveh and God's mercy, but God will ask him to turn back. Um, I assume that's perfectly clear from the outset. Um, we'll just move on then. Uh, that's the whole book of Jonah so far. Um, this evening we're going to be looking at the last scene in that story, which is going to happen in three parts. Uh, the city, the plant, and the door. First up, we're going to be looking at the city from verses 1 to 5. So if you remember last week, the last verse of chapter 3, it said this, God saw their actions that the Ninevites had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. So this could have been the happy ending of the book of Jonah, uh, but no, Jonah has to have the final word. And while we've just seen the people of Nineveh repent and turn to God, now God sets his eyes on Jonah. Because in verse 1 we read that Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. And so he prays, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my country? That's why I ran, because I knew you were going to do this. Now, just in the off chance, the summary I just gave of Jonah wasn't completely clear. Here's another summary. It's a little bit simpler. In chapter 1, God saves Jonah's life by appointing a fish to swallow him. In chapter 2, Jonah praises God for this great salvation. In chapter 3, God saves the Ninevites from judgment he was going to bring on their evil. And in chapter 4 here, we see Jonah praying angrily at God. So apparently Jonah is happy enough to praise God for saving him, uh, but not so much for saving others. Which we can see pretty clearly when we compare the two prayers there in chapter 2 and chapter 4. If we just go back really quickly and look at that prayer of thanksgiving from chapter 2, from the belly of the fish. Now I realize you can't read any of that, that's a lot of text to take in. I'll make it a little bit easier for you and just focus on three words. I and me and my. As you can see, it seems like his favorite Beatles song is I, me, mine, because everything is about Jonah and Jonah's salvation. And now you might say, well, of course he was saved as an individual, so it makes sense he would talk as an individual, and the Psalms are full of prayers that are personal in the individual sense, praising God, praying to God. That's a, that's a good point. Uh, but if you remember what Jeremy said a couple of weeks ago, Jonah pinched a few of his favorite passages from the Psalms for this prayer, and he forgot the parts about repentance in the Psalms. Uh, but also, Jonah makes a few subtle changes. Two very quick examples, the start and the ending of this prayer. At the start, he's quoting Psalm 120, to Yahweh in my distress I called. But Jonah changes the order of the words. He prays, I call to God, from my distress. He moves himself to the front. At the end of the prayer, he prays to the Lord belongs salvation, but again, Jonah changes the order of the words and says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, these are just two examples. It might seem like a coincidence, but this is happening all throughout the psalm. 
Even in this prayer of thanksgiving, Jonah was putting himself first and putting God last. So the question might be raised, should we have picked up on this? I think most people, by the time they read chapter 4, they're pretty shocked that Jonah's had such a sudden change of heart. And yet even here, there were signs. Signs of selfishness, of self-righteousness, and of a heart that's turned inward. Now, I know there's something that's a little bit of a bugbear for a lot of people, Christian songs with too many of these I, me, my words in them. I think they can be fantastic myself, and they definitely have a place. Uh, But what would be a problem is if we sung about how we are saved and how God has worked in our lives, and you look across the room and see someone you hate, they're singing along, and so you stop singing and you fold your arms, which is kind of what Jonah was doing. When God was calling Jonah to let the Ninevites in on his song, suddenly he didn't want to sing anymore. And he prays like this in chapter 4. If you'll compare them, instead of praising God for saving his life from the pit, Jonah prays that God might take his life back down to the pit because he'd rather be alone in the pit than up here with them. But again, there's a bit of irony happening here because when Jonah, in, in his prayer, he quotes Exodus 34 when he's talking about God being compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. That's a quote from Exodus chapter 34. But that chapter was right after Israel bowed down to some golden calves that they had made. After Israel's sin was brought before God, God was ready to destroy Israel because of their great evil. Moses stepped in to pray for forgiveness and God turned away his anger. So does that sound familiar? Because that's the history of Israel. As far as we know, if Moses hadn't stepped in, they would have been toast. Israel exists as the people of God because God is merciful and compassionate and Jonah wouldn't exist if God wasn't like this. But now the same scenario plays out with another nation and Jonah wants none of it. It's like he's praying, God, I knew it. This is just like that time when you forgave us when we sinned and you almost destroyed us. But I can't believe you're doing it for them. And so reasonably enough, God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? So what should he say? Uh, Yeah, you're right, I have no right to be angry. You have every right to show the Ninevites mercy, just like you showed us mercy, something like that. But instead, what does he say? Well, nothing. Jonah doesn't respond, he just throws his toys out of the cot and he walks out of Nineveh. Jonah is acting like a child going from rage to euphoria to rage based on whether he's getting what he wants. Just like a child, Jonah's world is so small. His horizons are so narrow. Because if you think about it, why do children get angry? It's because another kid takes their toy, because they want to be picked up, because they want the blue crayon and not the green crayon. Because when you're a kid, your world is so small, and that's fine. When we start small, that's fine. But when we grow, we're meant to grow to relate to all kinds of people, to find out more of what we're like, what makes us tick, uh, how to be a good student, friend, uh, neighbor, how to relate to people who are very different from us, 
to have our heart grow towards people who are very different from us. We grow up and our world gets bigger. But every now and then God steps in and does something that's going to challenge our horizons. Because sometimes God's purposes, they are painfully deeper than ours. And we might say, wait a minute, this isn't the God I repented and turned towards. I turned towards a God whose priorities align with mine. But when we come face to face with the mercy of God, we realize it's so much bigger and less familiar than we ever realized. And we realize how much our priorities have burrowed into our hearts, how truly narrow our horizons are. And no one's immune to feeling like this. I mean, you could say Jonah, he was a respected prophet, preacher, successful missionary. Surely he's above this kind of behavior. Well, no, of course not. Even mature Christians can easily fall back into the old sins and self-deceptions. We can all be tempted to burrow in on our own desires, to narrow our horizons, to narrow down God's mercy to something that lines up with our own little worlds. And what's one way you can tell that's happening? That we care less and less about the things that God cares about. That our heart becomes less and less like God's. Because look at Jonah, in his prayer, in his anger, he describes what God's like. He's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, relents from sending disaster. And how many of these is Jonah like? Well, Jonah isn't gracious, but he wants revenge. He isn't slow to anger, but is quick to lash out. He isn't abounding in love, but in hatred. He isn't relenting from sending disaster. He would love nothing more than for Nineveh to burn. Jonah's heart seems to be getting further and further from the vast mercy and deep patience and tender love of God. And that's why in verse 5 we read that Jonah left the city, he ignores God's question completely, storms out, finds a place east of it, And there he makes a shelter for himself, sits in the shade and waits what's going to happen to the city. Even after all of this, Jonah, he sets up a bomb shelter next to the city and waits for the fireworks to start. Even after everything that's happened, he's just sitting there waiting for God's judgment to come raining down. But obviously still, it doesn't because God has had mercy on this city. But God's so merciful that he isn't even done with Jonah yet. Because God tries yet again to broaden Jonah's horizons to show him a little bit more of his mercy. Which we see in the next section, the plant from verses 6 to 11. Where we get this curious little story of a plant, a worm, and a wind. Uh, But before we get into that, I think it's helpful to go to the end of the story because God kind of tells us what he's doing throughout the whole story right at the end. And so it's helpful to know that before we go through it. This is what he says in verse 10, you cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh. So this story about the plant is meant to be a picture of Nineveh. 
It's all meant to be a picture of the whole story up until this point. It's the whole drama retold, just with a few different props, and except with a different ending. What do I mean by that? I'll, I'll explain. We'll go through the story with that big picture in mind. First, God appoints the plant to protect Jonah, to save Jonah. And Jonah is greatly pleased with this plant. With this, with this big picture in mind, what's going on here? Well, where have we seen Jonah being saved before? In the whale, Jonah is saved from certain death. And as we saw in his prayer, Jonah was over the moon about it. And we see that again, Jonah is being saved in this little mini salvation by the plant and he's very pleased with it. Next, God appoints a worm to attack the plant and the plant withers. God appoints a scorching east wind and the burning sun to afflict Jonah. Uh, so what's going on here? Uh, well, God has taken away his instrument of mercy, the plant. God does to the plant what Jonah wants to do to Nineveh. God says, well, let's try that with the plant. He gives Jonah a small taste of his mercy being taken away to try to soften Jonah's heart towards the Ninevites. And then finally, Jonah cares about something perishing, but it's a plant and not the 120,000 people who were before him. And we can see God pushing him on that uh, in another little detail we're given. At the start of chapter 4, uh, it talks about Jonah heading east from Nineveh, which is an interesting detail. Why do we care? Why do we need to know that? Then there's the sun rising. God appoints a scorching east wind. Again, why do we need to know that? Uh, well, this is my own theory. Uh, you can make of it what you will. But uh, the east wind uh, means a wind blowing from the east heading west. I think God is quite literally sending a wind to push Jonah back towards Nineveh, just like he did on the ship. And this is the first time in the book that Jonah cares about anything other than himself. And God, he's so gracious, he says, okay, we can, we can work with that. So God graciously tries to teach Jonah from this drop of outward looking compassion, even if it's towards a plant. Uh, this kind of fits with a theory that a friend of mine had once. Um, I don't subscribe to it, but it's an interesting theory nonetheless, that you are either a people person or a plant person. Apparently, you can't be both. If you have a lot of house plants and pot plants, apparently you don't like people. And if you like people, then your garden is all dead and your home is void of life. That's the theory, make of it what you will. I think it's kind of stupid, but in at least one instance with Jonah, it actually works because Jonah was definitely more of a plant person than a people person. And so God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah replies, yes, it's right. I'm angry enough to die. So if you've been listening, this is the second time that God asked Jonah this again God has to repeat himself to Jonah. God had to call Jonah twice to go to Nineveh. Now he has to call him twice to soften his heart to the people of Nineveh. And it's like God is asking him, you haven't been in control of the fish or the plant or the worm, they were all appointed by me. So why do you think that 
you can be in control of the city. You had compassion on the plant. Why? Because it gave you comfort. But you didn't plant it. You didn't grow it. You don't own it. But what if I have compassion on a city full of people who I created who are lost in their sin? Is it okay with you, Jonah, if I have a strong emotional concern for something other than myself? If you think about it, Jonah, I made and loved and destroyed that plant and I made and loved the city and that's why I didn't destroy it. So how can you be angry about the plant being destroyed and angry at me for not destroying the city? May I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. So this is God's final challenge, and I think it's meant to be a little bit ironic again. Because if you remember the king's decree last chapter, he said everyone has to dress in sackcloth and ashes and repent, including the animals. So in this bizarre final image in the book, the cows are repentant, and so the cows are saved. It's like a citywide parody of Jonah. It's like God is saying, Jonah, why on earth have all these cows repented, but you haven't? But as odd as this ending is, the book also ends with an open question. It would have been more comfortable for us to leave the book at the end of chapter 3 because there was some resolution but it's a lot more confronting to finish the book with chapter four because there isn't a happy ending, there isn't a resolution. The book finishes on a question and it's a question for us asking, will you come inside? So that's the final section, the door, where we're gonna skip ahead to Luke's gospel, chapter 15. Now, even though it isn't mentioned, in a way, I think this is the final image, the door in the book of Jonah uh, but to see that, we do have to skip to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. Now, the story that Jesus told, it's often called the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the two sons. Uh, I won't read the whole thing now, it's pretty long, but if you aren't familiar with it, I think it's worth reading when you get home. Uh, but I think it's fitting that we finish here because the more I look at Jonah, the more I think that it's basically the prodigal son of the Old Testament. Because both stories, they're speaking to Israelite leaders who were proud in their righteousness. In the prodigal son, there are two sons, the younger brother who rebels and runs from God and the older brother who stays with God but is really unhappy and furious that God accepts the younger brother back. And I think Jonah basically plays the role of both of these brothers throughout the story. Somehow he's both rebellious and self-righteous. But more importantly, both stories end with an open question. And the question is the same for both, so I'll just read the ending of The Prodigal Son. This is after the youngest son comes back, uh, the oldest son is outside the house, he doesn't want to come inside with his younger brother in there because he can't believe his father's forgiven him. And the father says to the older son, son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. And that's how the story ends. The older brother is still outside the father's house 
with the door open to welcome him back in, but the story ends with this question, will you come into God's house even if there are people you don't want inside? Which is the same question that Jonah ends on, will you come into God's house even if the Ninevites are inside? And I think that's the question the book is asking us. That's the door where we are standing before. Do you want to come into God's family, even if it means being confronted with his extravagant, surprising, and horizon-broadening mercy? Because God will welcome back people you never thought could repent. People who have had a life of wreckage behind them. They can wake up and turn to God. People who have hurt you for years and years and you feel like you can't possibly forgive them for the hurt they've caused, God will sometimes save our enemies. Because love for enemies is at the heart of the cross and that's the only reason God could rightly ask Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? Because without the cross, Jonah was completely right. Violence has every right to be met with violence. Hatred has every right to be met with hatred. Without the cross, our evil should be met with immediate justice. Nineveh would have been wiped out and Jonah would have been wiped out as well. But because of the cross where God poured out his burning anger for our sin on Jesus, there was justice. Where our sin was punished, but also on the cross, God showed the ultimate mercy by pouring out the penalty for our sin on his son so that none of us would have to face God's anger, we would only know God's mercy. When we're looking at the cross, we can see that God is both completely just and completely merciful. And if there's one place in the world where the spiral of anger and bitterness and revenge has to end, then it's the cross. If this evening you know that your heart has been spiraling inward, if you've been spending too much time in your own desires, you're finding it harder and harder to think outside of your own experience, then the cross offers us a lifeline to turn out our hearts in compassion, to pull us out of that spiral. And Jonah 4, it's trying to help us bridge that gap between how we see God's grace at work in our life and how we see God's grace at work in other people It's trying to shine a light on, wait a minute, why do I excuse that in myself but condemn that in others? When you buy something that's too expensive and you know you don't need it, uh, but uh, that's okay, I was having a down day, that's fine. But when others do the same, I can't believe they're so self-indulgent. Or when you say that thing about that person, you're just venting, it's natural, you need to get it out, but when they say it, they're such a gossip. Why do we do that? Why do we treat anyone as if they are undeserving of grace? Because when we do that, when we treat anyone as if they are undeserving of grace, we are absolutely unlike Jesus. Because of the cross, we have to make sure that we never lose sight of God's deep, compassionate, merciful care for people. And this gospel has to make us broaden our horizons because God's mercy stretches as far as the east is from the West. This gospel has to grow our hearts. It has to teach us, sometimes painfully, that God's mercy is more incredible than we could ever imagine. So let me pray that for us right now. 
Uh, Father, please open our eyes to see your mercy in all of its height and depth and breadth. And Father, help us to live in rich relationships in deep community where we embrace the differences in your body, where we love those you have brought in who are very different to us. Because we praise you that the gospel is powerful enough to make our burrowed-in hearts turn outward and help all of us to see and to know that there are no ordinary people or unnecessary people in the body of Christ. By your grace, enlarge our hearts. May we be more intrigued with others and less irritated. Help us to welcome welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed us to the glory of God. And we ask all of this in Jesus' loving and merciful name.